Father, thank you. Thank you for your great love for us. This is a crisis we're in globally, but we have through this pandemic and all the havoc that it has brought. You offer it not only, Lord, as a place to learn to trust you, but as a platform for people to see you in us, in the way we react, in the way we answer, in the decisions we make, in the grace that we give, in the love we share. So yes, Lord, I pray, may they see you in us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, good morning. If you're joining us online, especially if it's for the first time or if you've been watching us for a while and you haven't let us know, I hope you'll change that right now. And before we open our Bible, you'll grab your smartphone and send us a text. Send us the word welcome to this number, 714-847-7258. I'm sorry, 714-868-7258. The acronym is 714-868-SALT. If you'll send the word welcome to that number, we're going to send you a little gift in the mail. You'll actually like it. It won't be junky stuff that sometimes uh, organizations send out. It won't be something that you will laugh and look and say, wonder why anybody would send that to anybody else. I promise you'll like it. You'll use it. You'll have, uh, you'll have a little moment of peace with it, maybe. We're just going to send you a, the gift of coffee, okay, uh, or some other good drink that you may enjoy. All of that just for uh, a kind way of us trying to make you feel welcome if you'll send the word welcome to that number, 714-868-SALT, 868-7258. Now, if you have one of these, if you have a Bible, let me invite you to open it, please, in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew Scriptures, in God's book, in the first part of it, in 1 Samuel chapter 16. In 1 Samuel 16, you're going to learn that what people esteemed in the land of Israel was not the same thing that God esteemed. Israel grew tired, we learn in the book of Samuel, of having God rule over them. They grew uncertain because they could not see him. It's one of the most tragic decisions recorded in God's word. Though they had God ruling over them as their king and their shepherd, they made a tragic decision. They said, we want to be like the other countries. We want to have a king who can stand in front of us, who can pump up the troops, lead us out into battle. They rejected God. They rejected the last of his, the judges and the first of his prophets, a man named Samuel. And paradoxically, the man that God gave them first as their king was the most handsome man in the country. He stood head and shoulders above his countrymen. If you wanted a man to look good, to get out in front of the troops and lead you, Saul would have been the choice. But as God himself will tell Samuel, man doesn't, man and God judge on different criteria. Man looks on the outward appearance and God looks on the heart. And the cowardly, treacherous heart of Saul will be revealed soon enough. That's why in 1 Samuel 16, even though Saul is still king, God sends Samuel into the countryside to anoint another man, 
the youngest of many brothers. When Samuel arrived in the house, he saw the oldest boy and thought, there stands God's anointed. And God said, no, it's, that's not the man. And they went and looked through all of Jesse's sons, and one by one, God said, that's not the king. That's not the man I've chosen. And Samuel asked, 1 Samuel 16, do you have any other sons? And dismissively, the answer comes back, well, yeah, there's another boy, but he's out watching the sheep. And when David, when young David comes in, to the shock, and I'm sure to the shock of all, and I'm sure to the disappointment, especially of the old of the eldest brother, God said to Samuel, There stands the king, anoint him. He'll lead my people. And right there in front of his whole family, David is anointed. The Holy Spirit comes on him to empower him for ministry. And then, surprisingly, David goes right back to the same mundane life he's always known, and he actually starts serving the rejected but still reigning king, Saul. And that brings us to the best Bible story, perhaps according to many, in the entire Old Testament. That takes us to the Valley of Elah. I've been there on two occasions in the nation of Israel. The last time we went, the schedule was a little bit tight. And the tour guide and I made, because of the difficulty of getting there and because of bad weather, we actually made the decision not to go. Having been there, I reasoned it would be a disappointment for most people because it doesn't look like much. Memory can play tricks, but in my memory, it's a small little place. There's two modest hills on, the, on either side of this very shallow, small valley. In my memory, it's not much different from looking across Beach Boulevard from one side to the other. It's not much land, but it represents a borderland. And the nations of Israel are going to be threatened again by a perennial enemy, by the Philistines. So they come to the border of their land, and they stand with an enemy army in front of them and their homes behind them. And all that stands between these men and the destruction of all they love is whatever courage they can muster. As we continue this short series about courage, you're going to find in 1 Samuel 17 that courage is in very short supply. 1 Samuel chapter 17, it's an exciting, proverbially famous story, but it's a long one, so please open your Bibles. 1 Samuel chapter 17. Now the Philistines, it says, gathered their armies for battle, and they were gathered at Soko, which belongs to Judah, and encamped between Soko and Azekah in Ephestamim. And Saul and all the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah and drew up in line of battle against the Philistines. And that might take you in your mind's eye to biblical movies or ancient war movies that you've seen where the armies line up and face each other. The Philistines stood on the mountain on the one side and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side with a valley between them. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, that's his hometown, whose height was six cubits in a span. In other words, he's over nine feet tall. He had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of his coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. In other words, his armor weighed 125 pounds. 
And I can't begin to imagine a man that size that would be willing to take 125 pounds of gear on his body as protection. Modern soldiers, modern police officers wear armor too. It's 15 or 20 pounds. This man's coat of armor alone is about 125. He had bronze armor on his legs and a javelin of bronze slung along between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam and his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron. The Bible in this translation uses ancient terms. The spearhead's 15 pounds. In other words, if he hits you with this, not only will you be cut, you'll be crushed. This is a man of absurdly gigantic, impressive, terrifying dimensions. Verse 7, his shield-bearer went before him. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel. Another man, in other words, one man walks out into the valley and shouts across this shallow, tiny little valley, why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? Are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. He's going back to an old custom, combat by champion. Here's the reasoning. If these armies clash, thousands will die. Let's not do that. We'll send our best. You send your best. They'll fight one-on-one, -on -one, and we'll honor the agreement. Whoever wins, whoever's champions win, they rule over the other nation. Well, how did Israel take it? <laughs> Look in verse 11. When Saul, remember, when they're taller than anyone king, when Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistines, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Have you been dismayed and greatly afraid these days? I have. When you've got a problem the size of Goliath facing you, maybe fear and dismay is a reasonable, understandable first reaction. And that's where it would have ended, except for what began to happen in verse 12. Look. Now, David was the son of an Ephrathite of Bethlehem and Judah named Jesse, who had eight sons. In the days of Saul, the man was already old and advanced in years. The three oldest sons of Jesse had followed Saul to the battle, and the names of his three sons who went to the battle were Eliab the firstborn, and next to him Abinadab and the third Shammah. David was the youngest. And that's one way for the author of 1 Samuel to tell you that not much can be expected of David because he's the youngest of all these boys. He's been incomprehensibly anointed as the next king of Israel, but this isn't really his place. Not even all of David's brothers have gone to war. Only three have, and David, well, you're going to see the errand they give David. David was the youngest. 
The three eldest followed Saul, but David went back and forth from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. And that's ancient war, and that's modern war. The men are going to war, but those who are still too young, considered unworthy, considered unable, well, those boys are going to stay home because somebody's got to feed the sheep. Surely our army will stand between us and disaster, and if they come home victorious, we want there to be something for them to come home to. We're just going to keep the home fires burning, as they say. Verse 16, for 40 days the Philistine came forward and took his stand morning and evening. That's a quiet little verse, but especially in the ancient world, it's a heavy one because this is an honor-based culture. And in a form of combat that should have been readily understood by all generals and all soldiers, Staring across each other in the valley, the Philistines laughing and sneering, the Israelites trembling. Goliath is going out every day to ask a question, where is he? I see a whole army in front of me, send me one man. I'm here, I'm ready, let's fight, let's do this thing. Let's fight, let's end it right now. And for over a month, in a culture where death was preferable to dishonor, Israel shrunk back and soldiers looked side-eyed, shoulder to shoulder. They looked out at Goliath, looked sideways at each other, and no one stepped forward, not even the tallest and the best-looking among them, their king. But God's at work. God always is. What God is doing here is exposing the frailty of the king and the frailty of Israel. But in the background, he has been preparing the young man he has already anointed. See, and this is key to understanding this story. God has already made a promise to David. The question now is whether David is going to believe it. Because in the privacy of his home and family, David has already been told by God, you're my king. Go serve the king who is living and reigning, but I want you to know you're the true king. You're a man after my own heart. I believe and I have trusted you. I'm going to use, as the psalm will later say about David, God would use the integrity of his heart and the skill in his hands to guide and to shepherd his people. David has resumed an ordinary life serving the king and tending the sheep, but in God's providence, because God always has a move, David's going to show up on the battlefield, not to fight, but to deliver some sandwiches. Check this out. Verse 17, Jesse said to David, his son, take your brothers, take for your brothers an ephah of this parched grain, that's several gallons of grain, and these ten loaves, and carry them quickly to the camp to your brothers, and take these ten cheeses to the commander of their thousand. Now there's a dad who knows how to get along with the master sergeant. The boys are going to get some ordinary food, but he says, find their commanding officer and give him 10 cuts, give him 10 of these cheeses to the commander of their thousand. See if your brothers are well and bring some token from them. 
Now Saul and they and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Elah, and I think there's irony here because it says they were fighting the Philistines, and actually they weren't. They had dressed up like soldiers to do absolutely nothing. They were standing in the valley of Elah to fight the Philistines, but nobody's willing. But God always has a move. Verse 20. David rose early in the morning and left the sheep with a keeper and took the provisions and went as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the encampment as the host was going out to the battle line, shouting the war cry. And Israel and the Philistines drew up for battle, army against army. I want you to see, can you see how pathetic this little rehearsal is? They're shouting battle. They may be singing an anthem. They're dressed for war, but no one will step forward. This has gone on for over a month, and there's no news of any kind back at the home front, good or bad, because no one will do anything. Only Goliath steps forward day by day. David left, verse 22, David left the things in charge of the keeper of the baggage and ran to the ranks and went and greeted his brothers as he talked with them, bad timing for Goliath. As he talked with them, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came up out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before, and David heard him. <laughs> uh, now it's going to get interesting. That's half the story, but the action is about to begin. To this point, it's all been preparation. The author of 1 Samuel has let you see the cowardice of all Israel, and especially the cowardice of their king. And he's going to show you how an ordinary shepherd boy just happens by coincidence, in other words, by God's providence, happens to run the food. David is an ancient world Uber delivery boy. He's going to take a little food to his brothers. He's going to try to curry favor with them, with their commander, and he just happens to be there asking his big brothers, hey, how's it going? Everybody okay? Anybody been wounded? Anybody been killed? What's been going on? David is standing there when David hears Goliath's taunt and Goliath's challenge. All the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were much afraid. And the men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel, and the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter and will make his father's house free in Israel. That means no taxes. So I want you to see how desperate Saul actually is. The offer is, you'll be wealthy. You can marry my daughter. And, bonus, there's no taxes. Take all this money. Change your life forever. You don't owe me any back in taxation. You'll be related to royalty. What a deal. What is this? This is cowardice. This is desperation. This is the tallest and best-looking man in the nation grasping at straws when he could have had God instead. And David, the shepherd boy, is listening to all this, a little amazed, I think. Verse 26, David said to the men who stood by him, what shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? 
For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? See, David's got the right angle on it. David understands that Goliath isn't picking a fight with them. He's picking a fight with God who loves them. He's standing and denying and cursing God and denying his promises and his presence, his power, his reality. David seemingly can't believe that this is going on and that this has been going on for over a month. This is what you guys have been doing? Dad's been worried sick. He wants me to bring back some of your, some belonging from you to show in some way that you're still here, you're still alive. Are you mean to tell me all you've been doing is staring across this little valley and listening to this man cuss every day? Who's he? The people answered him in the same way, so it shall be done to the man who kills him. There's so much pressure on David. Look. Look at the pressure. Look at the trouble of criticism, of character assassination, and from his older brother. Verse 28. Now Eliab, his eldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men, and Eliab's anger was kindled against David. And he said, why have you come down? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption and the evil of your heart, for you have come down to see the battle. And that would be tough for any kid brother to hear, but it's especially tough in that culture. His older brother thinks that David's heart is wicked. He thinks he's irresponsible. He's left his chores, and all David wants to do, according to his older brother Eliab, is sit on the sideline while the men do the fighting. Ugly. Character assassination within the family. Verse 29, listen to a little brother's complaint and defense. David said, what have I done now? Those of you who have older siblings, did you ever say that? What have I done now? Was it not but a word? And he turned away from him toward another and spoke in the same way, and the people answered him again as before. When the words that David spoke were heard, they repeated them before Saul, and he sent for him. I just want you to see the desperation wrapped up in the heart of Israel. A shepherd boy, the youngest of a large family, is walking among soldiers saying, surely not. You guys can see and hear him, right? You hear what he's saying, right? You hear him cursing our God? You hear him denying God's word? Are you telling me no one has done anything about this? No one is going to do anything about this? The king said, what now? You'll be rich. You'll be related to royalty through marriage. You won't even get taxed. So, I think the people share Saul's desperation because they come to him and say, there's a kid out here asking questions. He seems to have a little bravado, Saul. David said to Saul, verse 32, here's the beginning of courage, church. David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. <laughs> it falls to the shepherd boy to say, everybody stop freaking out. Everybody calm down. Don't be frightened. I'll fight him. And Saul, who knows nothing of the Lord, what he knew he has forgotten, 
looks to his own devices, his own plans, which to this point haven't motivated Saul to go out into battle. But now that somebody else is willing to go, Saul has a helpful idea. Verse 33, Saul said to David, you are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth, and he has been a man of war from his youth. In other words, he's been a salty soldier longer than you've been alive, son. You can't fight him. But David said to Saul, your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear or a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and I delivered it out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them. Mark this. For he has defied the armies of the living God. David's confidence and trust is not in himself. His confidence is in God. He's saying this giant, this warrior you're also afraid of won't be able to resist me any more than those wild animals I killed to defend my family's fortune. And here's why. He's defied God. David said, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, go and the Lord be with you. And it's a cool, righteous thing to say, but it shows such cowardice on the part of Saul because he should have already led. He should have already fought. This should already be over, but all the, old, all the king can muster is a hopeful blessing. And Saul, again, not willing to do godly work, not willing to act in faith, he sticks to his own ideas. Then Saul clothed David with his armor. He put a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail, and David strapped his sword over his armor, and he tried in vain to go, for he had not tested them. Then David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them. So David put them off. Then he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. Finally, finally, says Goliath, they're sending a man. I'll chop him to bits in the valley and we'll own Israel. The Philistine moved forward and came near to David with his shield bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him. For he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. In other words, David looks across the valley he sees something like a choir boy. And this blood-stained killer looks across after asking for 40 days for the best of Israel. He's amazed and actually disgusted. They sent him a kid instead. And the Philistine said to David, am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. You see, David and Goliath had the same understanding. What is meeting in the valley are not only two men. What are meeting in the valley is a meeting and a battle of the gods. Because the God of Israel has made generous and strong promises to his people. He has promised to make them a nation, to give them land, to give them a descendant, to give them, in fact, one day, one man who would save all the tribes and all the clans of the world. He has promised to Israel a Savior. His name will be Jesus. But on this day, 
This Philistine has the audacity to curse the God of Israel by his own pagan false gods. Then Philistine said, then the the Philistine said to David, Come to me, I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, Remember this, this is the crux of the story. You come to me with the sword and with the spear and with the javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head, and I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. This is what David sees and believes that no one else does. David alone sees God in the battle. The Philistines see a giant. Saul sees his own death and the end of his kingship. The Goliath, the giant, sees grasshoppers before him. Cowardly men with no God to defend them and nothing to lean on. David alone sees God and his promises. And here's how the battle wrapped up so famously. Verse 47. And all this assembly may know that the Lord saves, not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. When the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead, and he fell on his face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with the sling and with the stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of his sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. Then the Philistines saw that their champion was dead. They fled. And the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout and pursued the Philistines as far as Gath and the gates of Ekron, so that the wounded Philistines fell on the way from Sharaim as far as Gath and Ekron, and the people of Israel came back from chasing the Philistines and plundered their camp. Finally, God's people found their courage. Why are we told this story? For a simple reason. Stay with me for five minutes, and I'll tell you what the point of this story is and what to do with it. This story is in Scripture, and this story has captured the hearts of God's people from the day it was first witnessed on an actual battlefield you can still visit in Israel. All of this is in the Bible to teach us simply this. People who believe God's Word will live for His purpose, and they will lead His people. That's the difference. The difference between the singular man of courage in this story and everyone else in it is simply that. David had the grace to believe God's word. That's it. That's all. Saul did not believe God's word. The soldiers of Israel did not believe God's word. Goliath did not believe that God even existed. 
One man in the valley of Elah believed God's word, believed that God's word was true, and for that reason, that man alone lived out God's purpose and became, that day, he had already been anointed. Now he's affirmed, and now he's functioning as a leader for God's people. What does that have to do with you? Absolutely everything. If you will dedicate yourself in this pandemic to knowing and cultivating and going deep into God's Word, and if you will take the step of faith to believe it, you will have all the courage you need to meet all the challenges that come your way. David believes God's Word, and that is why David saw the strength of God instead of the size of the opposition. One of the reasons we're driving each other collectively over the edge as a country is we're only looking at the size of the opposition. We're reading charts and we're having arguments on Facebook and we're making proud and angry and fearful pronouncements, sending out criticism in every direction, and God's word remains closed. God's word remains perhaps read, but unremembered and unobeyed. It is only to the people of God who believe God's word that can live for his purpose and lead in their little sphere of influence, lead some of his people. David has everything against him. He has a terrifying army right in front of him. He has a fearful army right beside him. He has an angry older brother assassinating his character. But to David, none of that compares to God's promises. And dear Christian, look where I am in the book. You see how little of the Bible we've read when we come to 1 Samuel? You've been told so much more You've been told all of this. You've been told of the, son, of the God who loved you so much that he sent his son to act with ultimate courage, to go to the cross, to die for sins, to pay for all your disobedience and all your rebellion. You have been promised something that David could hardly begin to grasp, that you are going to be God's own beloved child, his son or his daughter. You're going to be given a new name and a new identity. It fell to David under the inspiration of God to prophesy of the one you've already met, Jesus. David in his psalms spoke, sometimes in eloquent detail, of the life and death of Jesus. You live on the other side of the cross. The promises I was mentioning to you earlier that you are more than a conqueror through God who already loved you, David could not begin to fathom the depth of God's love. He knew it. He wrote of it. He sang of it. But I'm convinced David could not begin to imagine the Son of God become flesh, dying for sinners to turn us into saints, to turn us into the very sons and daughters of God. Why are Christians acting without courage in a pandemic or at any other time in history? Simply because we do not believe God. His word goes unread. His word goes unpondered. His word goes unprayed and unobeyed. And we falter and fear because like Saul, we look at our own resources instead of the lavish promises that God has already made us. When we believe God's word, you're going to succeed where more qualified people have already feared and already failed. That's the difference. Listen to the New Testament. Without faith, it is impossible to please him. 
For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Hebrews 11 verse 6, the only thing necessary to please God is to believe God. And real belief always is expressed through action. It is not singing a song. It is not confessing a creed. It always shows up in the real world by obedience, by David saying, who's that? Are you guys hearing this? The king said, what? I don't need any of that. I just need to go defend God's honor. I need to go remind this giant what God already said about us. And he stepped forward with a shepherd's bag and a few stones. The same things God had used in the past to defend David and to protect his family. David prefigures the appearance of Jesus, the true shepherd, the real king, the only savior on this day in the Valley of Elah. We're given an opportunity through story to believe God's Word, to begin believing God's Word. If you've forgotten it, if you've thought that in these new circumstances God's Word was insufficient, and listen, let me be practical, let me be clear. You were sitting across the table from me. I know that no Christian would ever say aloud, God can't handle this. This is too much. This trouble, this pandemic, this job loss, this thing going on in my family, this thing breaking the heart of my wife or my husband, this thing that is tormenting my kids, the insecurity of their education, whatever it is, no Christian would name any problem and say God can't handle it. But we act that way. You see, none of the Israelites ever actually said anything blasphemous. They never actually spoke against God. They just stepped back instead of stepping forward. People who take God at his word act on it. People who take God at his word keep moving forward in the confident faith that God will not go back on his promise, that God will not abandon his people, that God loves us too much to allow us to be defeated when we act in his name. So my simple invitation to you as I've been saying for the last few weeks, is to filter your life through the Word of God, to have much less social media, much less news, much less argument, much less controversy, much, more, much less examining your own heart and taking your own counsel to hear instead the Word of God who tells you across these glorious 66 books that God loved you so much that he gave his son to die for your sins so that when the worst thing on earth comes for you, which is death, that will be used in God's powerful hand simply to move you from here to your actual eternal blessed home called heaven where you'll love God and enjoy him forever. So what are we so afraid of? Are there problems? Is there a crisis? Is there danger? Is there an illness? Are we living in times of tremendous upheaval? Absolutely so. Absolutely yes. It would be foolish to deny any of those things, just as it would have been foolish to deny that there was a giant in the middle of the valley cursing. All we're saying is that the God of, the God of David, the God of Israel, our God Jesus Christ is greater. He's given us his word, so let's believe him. Let's step forward in action. 
then we'll discover that we're living our purpose. We're living the purpose that God had for our lives because we'll be fulfilling His purpose for us. And you're going to find in stages great and small, in the quietness of your living room, or in much bigger places where God has given you influence, you're not only going to live God's purpose, you're also going to do what David did. You're also going to lead His people. Let's pray together, church. Father, help us believe you as David did. You've given us your word. And Lord, if there's a single person watching this who has doubted your existence, your love, your goodness, give them the grace to believe in you afresh the way David did. I just have to ask, I'd be remiss, I'd feel criminal if I didn't. Have you trusted Jesus as your Savior? David's just a pale little picture. He's a faint, distorted, not quite right promise. He's a faint echo of the real shepherd, of the real king, Jesus. The one who always steps forward into battle, the one who meets the wolf, the one who meets death and brings out of that encounter, brings out of that clash, eternal life to anyone who turns away from their sin and believes him. Christian, if you know that, you're already set. You have only to believe God and obey him. But if you don't, my invitation to you is perhaps you've heard the gospel dozens of times to give up on yourself, to repent of your sin and start trusting Jesus. If you do that, would you let us know? Would you send us an email? Or would you send us a text with the name Jesus, the name of the Savior, to 714-868-SALT? If you're new, if you're joining us for the first time or you've been watching for weeks and haven't let us know that you're here, the word welcome to that same number, 714-868-7258, the acronym SALT, a little easier to remember. Courage is needed now more than ever. Next week, I'm going to take you into the verse that I've most often heard quoted, that God has not given us a spirit of fear but power, love, and self-control. I've heard that used and used to strengthen God's people. I've also heard it misused since this pandemic began. Next week, together, back in person, outside, we're going to explore it. I hope you'll join me. Thank you for your continued ministry. Thank you for your faithfulness. If you would like to give online, here's how. Just go to crosspointhb.org slash give. If you need help, if there's anything at all we can do to serve you, send me a personal email or send it to info at crosspointhb.org. If this message has been a help to you, it'll be posted on the church Facebook page. It's already on the church website or will be in just a few minutes when I'm done. It'll be on the church YouTube channel. You can search crosspointhb.org. Share the live stream. Share the video. It's amazing how far the gospel is reaching digitally. I've literally heard from all across the country. So if you've been strengthened, just humbly say to someone, this help me, maybe it'll help you. And watch what happens when people hear God and actually have the grace and the courage to believe him. You can live out God's purpose if only you will believe his word. Father, thank you for the morning we've had. Bless us, Lord, according to our need. 
If there's a single person here, Lord, maybe they're jaded and tired and cynical, Lord. Maybe their faith has been beaten down and weakened in this crisis. Let them reach out to you first, Lord, and if we can be of any service, may they tell us. I'd love to hear from them, Lord, to know how we may be able to celebrate with them and take the next step with them. Thank you. Thank you for your word. Help us believe you as David did, that we may have courage. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thank you.